friends. My name is Stephen. We're here today to talk about the first three chapters in The Great Ordeal. It's the third book in the Aspect Emperor series. We are back after a hiatus. Good to be back. And it's, it feels like putting on that old, comfortable winter hoodie that you just love to put back on. It feels nice to be back. So, uh, yeah, we've been discussing the first three chapters, and it is my first time reading the Aspect Emperor series, and I am happy to report that I am not alone in <laughs> it being my first read anymore, now that Katarina is in uncharted territory, just like I am. So, uh, Daniel, will you kick us off with an introduction, please? I'm Daniel, and I guess I'm the only one that is not in uncharted territory. And I guess we'll see how this goes. I mean, I'm I'm just happy that I can say anything and no one can tell me I'm stupid because I officially have no idea what's going on or what's going to happen from this point on. It's a nice, it's nice to, it's a freeing feeling. Yeah, it's nice. So the, uh, so how did, how did it feel to, to come back to this world? What did you guys, what did you guys think? Well, I was really excited. Like I did not, I didn't really know what to expect of this book. I've done my best to avoid spoilers. I still know like there are some things that I know will probably happen, but for the most part, I really have very little idea of what's going to happen. And I got super pumped when I read these first chapters. Um, the, I mean, the first chapter in itself, I think it's something that we could spend like just two hours talking about it without a problem. Um, but um, even the second one, the third one, there's a lot of exciting things happening. And I feel like some things that I've been missing in the last two books are back. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Mm, they were, it was a good, good beginning of a book. Our Scott Baker always ends his books with a big bang so the next book can't can't start off as fast but we're already in the sm nets like in the middle of a war basically uh akamian is in ishul as soon as we figure out what he's doing sorwill is in isterbent everyone wants to know about the non-men so everyone is in a place where we're gonna get to learn more about about new stuff so i think it's more it's a more exciting start than other other books previously yeah i feel like we're finally like we're finally getting to the place where we've been trying to get to the whole time like it kind of feels like well i mean i guess it makes sense that the first two books were a way of getting us to this point and like this is where i think most of the really exciting things will start happening. All right, that's 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 the feeling I'm getting, at least. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm what, curious to hear. Yeah. What are you guys most excited to hear about in this new book? Ooh. Good question. Probably the non-men. I mean, we already kind of talked about it in the in the previous episodes, but. I really, I'm really enjoying R. Scott Baker's take on the elves and, and immortality and what it does to its species. So um, I'm really, well, I mean, 
we'll we'll see how things how things turn out. But I'm really really interested to learn more about uh, Ishtarbinth and its inhabitants, and also the Mwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwamwam
Slave's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always try to get, get pick up small details and what has come before. There seems like there's little things hidden sometimes. Right. Yeah. So, what did you? What do you think of the prologue? Or was there anything, anything specific that um, you thought was interesting or stood out to you? Um, the I think it's the last line in the prologue it was one that I had. Oh no, it's not the last line. It's there is a line in the prologue. I believe this is the prologue. Yeah. Um, on page thirty. History, history murders the children of weak rulers. Some of that, that line stuck out to me. But as far as uh, the rest of it, not too much other than repeating um, kind of what Maithanet had told Esmanet about he isn't what you think he is. Kind of going over that again. Yeah, one thing that I found interesting is to see was to see how Esmenet now thinks of herself as um, as a historical figure or someone who who makes history or is part of history, like someone about whom people in the future will read and and, and learn about, um, and I've found it i mean it's 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 a nice contrast or it's i think it's good to think back to where she started you know if you remember like in the first book where she was she's just a prostitute and she's always thinking about the world outside of um, her bedroom and the world outside of her city and she kind of wants to be part of these events she wants to be part of like the big things that are happening and now like now she's one of those people like she's part of history and it's kind of like be careful what you wish for um because she does not seem very happy with where she's ended up uh it's almost like she she's starting to see herself like that but then when it comes time to make those really hard decisions and ruthless decisions that are you, you have to make sometimes she's, she's almost like reluctantly um kind of you know when she when she has to decide what, what to do with the the woman who um disclosed her location and and caused all this and she she was hesitant to to act because she reminded her of her it was almost like seeing her what where she came from and she was hesitant to to do anything about it but when you're in that position you have to right because then she looks weak to all of her people yeah, yeah that, it's like that, that conversation with Ellie was fun mm-hmm. yeah, it's like she can't really ever leave her past behind but she can't really stop being a an empress or a ruler either um, and it's, I mean, the conflict within her is one of, I, I mean, I think she's like one of the best characters that R. Scott Baker's written, if not the best, um, because like the, the, the trajectory that she's like, has gone during that she's, she's went through and the, like the, 
layers to her character or just like she does like there like she's not a, like she's not necessarily my favorite character um i don't necessarily find her chapters to be the most exciting but as a character on it on, on her own i think she's just she's wonderful she's really fleshed out and she's been through a wide arc of this of a story with lots of challenges I still remember her almost getting stoned to death by a bunch of little kids. I remember her not dreaming she could wear boots. It's come a long way. It, it kind of makes me a little sad because I know some people are turned off by what happens to her in the first book and the darkness and they stop reading the series, but they miss out on such a great character that she develops into. And also the fact that she is, she is a mother, and in some ways it makes her incredibly weak. I mean, especially in her relationship to Kelmomas, but then in some other ways, it also makes her incredibly strong. Um, like her strength of will, I think, is something that um, has been consistent about her character. Um, from the first time we meet her and until today. I mean, for Kellis to, to for Kellis to choose her for his uh, for his seed, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, that says a lot about her. For him to choose, not, not that that's something to be proud of. I think I think you know what I mean. It, this comes out wrong, but she must be something special for him to choose her to bear his children. That's not weird. You're. It made sense. We, okay. we all we got okay. it. We get it. Okay. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I also thought in this prologue, like the juxtaposition between SMNet and her whole like empire just falling apart, and all she cares about is her kids and Kellis. His like is turning away from the whole empire in order just to go to Golgothara for some reason. So they're both just like seemingly casting away everything just for something that doesn't seem worth it. You think Kilmomus is not worth it? I don't know. I never hung out with him. Maybe. <laughs> I'm sure you'd win me over. Um, He's good at that. But if I if I would have seen him sitting on that throne with like matted hair and just crusted blood everywhere, I don't think I don't think you'd make it back from that. I would never like kill Momus. I it, it kind of makes me wonder if everyone is like, is it just because he's a child and so like everyone just assumes? that he's innocent or like it just it never even does it never even occur to them that you know he might be not an innocent child or is he like really good at hiding it because like as as you said like he's there in the throne like blood all over his face and in his hair and it never occurs to anyone to ask like how it got there like what had to happen in order for him to end up in this state um that he might have eaten someone and that's why there is blood on his face 
like eating someone raw. Um, Some ones. There's more than one person yeah. buried in that hole. Uh, and even like Esbedet, when when she finds him or when she's looking for him, she thinks to herself that he is he is of all the children of all her children he is the one that's most like her that he is the least dunian of all of them and i'm like no like why can't you see that it's 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 so obvious i kind of i kind of wondered if they saw the kids as as everyone sees all the different kids as kind of not a threat because they're so wrapped up in Kellis, like they're so concerned with Kellis or what he thinks or what he's doing or his strategies, and they kind of forget about everything else that he kind of flies under the radar. But yeah, you'd figure that being covered in blood and you might raise some eyebrows. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, you, you might be right in that they were born a lot later than the other kids. So Kellis probably did not pay too much attention to them or to Kelmomas and Sarmomas. Um, but like, I mean, they like they know what the other kids are capable of. Like, why why would you assume that Kalmomas is any different? I think there's a he's a good actor, like you were saying. Even the part where he's like laying there just pretending to sleep while he's just thinking about how he wants his mom to come in, and he's just waiting for her, and he can hear all the noises, and he knows exactly what's gonna happen. But he just needs to lay there and breathe like he's sleeping. So he's just good at playing the game. And he thought that everyone who knew was gone now, except for his dad. But now he knows Theliopa is smarter than he thought, I guess. And her weird dresses. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think Theliopa is next. His oh. next victim. Really? Well, she's she's like right now she's the only one who knows what he truly is. So I think it is in his best interest to get rid of her as soon as possible. Hmm. And he doesn't really care if like Asmoned will lose an invaluable advisor because of her dying because he doesn't care about the empire yeah, not it would also serve to, to further isolate us minute to getting rid of her so kind of served two purposes there but um that's seems really she mentions that she would be whatever her sweet little boy needed her to be protector provider comforter slave so she's drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, even even Celiopa says it, that she can reveal Kelmomasu's identity to her because she, because Esmanette is so dependent on him and would probably just break down if she found out that her sweet little boy is, is a cannibalistic monster. Monster. <laughs> Yeah, that the truth would destroy the empire or something. Is that how the empire is destroyed? Is the empire destroyed? Kellis seems to think is doomed to fail. 
Maybe he just wants everybody to think that. You never know what Kells is thinking. It's true. Well, we sort of we sort of got a glimpse of what Kells is thinking in the first chapter, um, and I mean that was some like that was one of the things that I didn't realize how much I missed those parts, like I, I, having at least some insight of what like what Kells was planning and his like to see how he views people um like that was a big part of the first trilogy and we haven't really i think we only saw him very briefly uh in the judging eye and maybe in the in the in the white light warrior um but it's it's been a really long time since we since we've been in Kellis's head is he any less confusing than he was all that many books ago well there is a head on a pole behind you yeah i read that about at least like five times for sure and like do, do you have any do you have any theories steve like or is, like is, was that perfectly clear to you i have no idea <laughs> I did read it a few times over too, and I thought I was misreading it or I missed something, but uh, that was another one of my questions for you guys was what did I miss there? Or what am I supposed to know? That was, it was pretty metal. He said, what, countless dead and these grotesque things with bladed fingers just ripping open babies and slurping out the insides? What did it, it said? teeth bringed with a thousand silver needles or a million silver needles yeah but, so i mean i have i have some theories hmm. go for it okay so i think and if i mean i i, I have you know i can be totally wrong and that's fine because i don't know uh, but i i i'm thinking that that is a description of the outside because i mean it kind of like it's similar to how it's like described in the um in the tusk you know like the demons like i don't know eating people um and also like it's told in the present tense which i have come to associate at least like with the gods or with something that is related to the outside so i guess like my theory like we we know that Kellis allegedly has has you know been able to leave the world and step into whatever is beyond so i think that's either like a memory from when that happened or maybe it's like him visiting the outside in the future also with the caveat that i don't really think that the past or the future exists in the outside so it's probably just happening at the same time if that makes any sense yeah it does what uh, what, what was their conversation it was he says we have pondered you and then Kelly says i've never been here before and then they say the living shall not haunt the dead yeah, and so where do the dead go? They go to the outside, at least. Well, well, I don't really know where you go if you're not damned, but if you're damned, you go to the outside, I guess. Um, 
so if Kellis is still alive and he's in the outside, I guess you can interpret it as him haunting the dead. I think I think there was enough to suspect that. That's a that's a good conclusion, Katarina. Okay. Thank you. And at the end of the last chapter, Kel Kelmomis is thinking about his dad and he's even thinking, but they say he's been to the outside. And then he's like, I don't believe that though. So little Kel doesn't even can't fathom it. Yeah, I think Kalumas is maybe too concerned with, like, um, terrestrial things. I don't think he has much capacity to think um, beyond his, like, little corner of the palace or the city. Notice that throughout the, throughout the especially the second series, Jane will gets quieter and quieter. <laughs> Um, but okay, but it still it doesn't solve the question of what is the head on the pole. Yeah. Um, well, there's also that other. There's a couple of, you know, when everything happens at once, the past, the present. Um, so I thought maybe he was doing something. He was able to see the everything at once. Um, but I didn't even think about. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I was a little bit lost in that part. So. I, think... I guess the head on the pole would probably be him or a totem that will get him back to his position because the outside is everywhere all at once, like, seemingly, and a giant lake of fire. So it would be something like an anchor to hmm. the what do you call like what, what the real world or the inside we'll just call it the inside okay fine i'll, I'll call it the inside or we um, can go stranger thing isn't say the above and the underneath okay i'll just stick to the inside and the outside <laughs> um but and there was but there was another and there was another quote where they were talking about damnation and someone who I assume is Kellis, he says uh, he says that where did I had it somewhere. He says that he does not fear because he doesn't fear damnation. No, that doesn't make sense. Uh, you have no fear. You refuse to fe you refuse to drip fear like honey. Because you have no fear, because you fear not damnation, because there is a head on a pole behind you. So, is it safe to assume that for some reason Kellis does not think he is damned? Or if he is, that maybe he'll be able to avoid the outside? when he's dead if if he's even capable of dying i guess yeah i don't even know if he is 
I guess I guess we'll see. Who know who knows currently what that means? He also refers to the god as an it. Yeah, and he says that poor Proaz, by the way. Um he's he says to Proaz that God is nothing human. Um it wants nothing, it loves nothing, it doesn't care, it is beyond care. And Pro Proaz is like um, like all like his last thirty last thirty years of his life just shattered to pieces. Yeah, that little part about the Dunyan and their little leaf falling ceremony to see who gets the sire children. <laughs> that was an interesting little bit. They still have some crazy beliefs, it seems like. It also said at the beginning of the entire series that more often than not, they knew like where a leaf was going to fall as it fell. Every single leaf that fell out of the tree, they knew where it was going to fall. Hmm. So it's so you're saying the selection's not actually random. That like like knew who is. I don't know. Like, do they know like who they're going to select to uh, ensure their reproduction? <laughs> I don't know that they necessarily do, but something maybe does. The the same way that uh, Yatwer kind of knows all the history of all the people and like that part where the lady escapes and has the kid and then the kid ends up being like related to the white luck warrior somehow do you guys remember that part mm -hmm. i don't remember exactly what happened she escaped and had a kid and then that kid ended up like i don't know living wasn't supposed to live, but somehow it lived, and then it became a useful tool later. And there was an earthquake. It all seems so random, but how random is anything? Seems random, but... I, I will say, um, as much as I have complained about Proyas in the past. I I do relate to him in in these in this chapter and in, in, in these scenes. Um or at least the the transformation that he's going through um I do find very interesting. Just like to, to see someone who was like one of these, like probably like one of the, the most loyal servants of Kellis and someone who so strongly believed in Kellis and in his teaching and to have him now realize that he's been lied to the whole time. And it's Kellis who's telling him, like it, that makes it so much worse 
it's that it's Kellis who him, like himself is telling him, no, I, I, I've just been like, I've been just feeding you bullshit this entire time. Um, I, I mean, I can't, I can't help but feel bad for him. Like, I still think he's a fanatic. Um, but I, I do empathize hmm. to some extent. I don't remember when that was, but at some point I told you I suspected Proteus would grow on you. <laughs> give well, him a chance. Just, just give, give poor Proteus a chance. Yeah. And even it, it happened actually even more so when he had a when he had the conversation with Sabon. Um, which by the way, I think I was on the right side of history. <laughs> the enemy or the enemy of your enemy is your friend, huh? Is that what Proyas is? Yeah. Uh <laughs> you know, like Proyas? Proyas is like the kid who like in college he he does all the homework, he studies for all the exams, he gets straight A's, and then when he leaves college, he finds out that all the other kids that were not paying attention, that like did not go to school, did not obey the teachers, that they're now doing so much better because no one cares about like how well you would follow the rules, but everyone cares about the experience you have. And that's exactly like 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 uh, Proyas and and so on, um, and I can definitely relate to Proyas more than to Soban in this in this scenario. Hmm. It it is worse with that Kellis just just gives this kind of like lays it all out for him. Like yeah, this is it, it makes it worse than hearing it directly from him. But. Kellis also does say he talks to the gods when he calls Mitt. So maybe Proeus still doesn't know what's a lie and what's not a lie. He knows that there were lies, but he still seems to believe in something. It ended with what Kellis telling Proyas that to the gods the world is a granary and we are the bread. That's pretty dismal. (laughs) So I guess we'll see how much he breaks him down or what the purpose is. There's still no clue why. It just seems like to Kellis, it's necessary that he takes away all of his beliefs and makes him believe something new to cast him like a new child. Yeah, that that is definitely something that I also want to know because it like it's it seems obvious that Kellis has a plan. Like there is, he has a very good reason why he's doing this to Proyas and, and to Soban as well, I guess. Um, but I have no idea what what that goal is. Like, what, he, what is he preparing him for? Um, why would he, why, like, when he spends this entire time making him believe, why is, he, why does he now need, what does he now need him to do the opposite? 
it seems like it's for something more meta, right? Something like soul or God oriented, not like he wants Proyas to turn on him and kill someone for him. He could just have told him to do that and he would have done it. He needs to like break him all the way down for some other reason. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's all the worse for Proyas because I think like Proyas just as a person, I think he is someone who is like very compassionate and he will like wants to be a good person. And so like, you no, know, like considering how many like thousands of people he has had kill in Kalis's name to now find out that it's all been, he's, he's done it for the wrong reasons is all the more difficult for him. Whereas I think that Sobon does not really care. <laughs> he doesn't, he, he doesn't care if he's done it for Kalis or if he did it just because he could. Um, so I think he has much, it's much easier for him to, uh, deal with this um, twist of events that Kells has introduced to them. Sabon. <laughs> no, I'm, you... I'm, I'm happy, you know, like I've missed this as well. Like I'm happy I can finally, you know, uh, thrash Sabon. It's, it's, it's been a long time since I had an opportunity. Maybe now we've grown it's... you too. Yeah, now him and Proyas are going to be buddies, it looks like, because Kellis told Sabon to help little broken down Proyas. He'll be waiting for you outside. I don't know, it seems seems difficult to imagine that the two of, the two of them would become friends. Uh, I think they mutually despise each other hmm. pretty strongly. But we'll see. I, may, I might be wrong. They might change. I mean, they are changing, I guess. They have something to bond them together. But maybe that'll be enough for a friendship. Yeah. They need a 9-11 event to unite everybody. Well, they already had one that made them eat strength meat, even though that's oh. considered, or used to be considered complete heresy. Um, and they're they're not holding back with eating shrank. It's, they're they're going all in with the shrank. Yeah, it talks about the different ways they eat it. You walk around the camp and you see like human what looks like human legs and human arms around, and nobody cares. But the upper class still like want to smash it down into hamburgers, so they don't have to think about it. Yeah, there's this. There's, there seems to be like an entire industry is developing around uh, the uh, processing and, and preparation of strang meat. Um, I'm just wondering if it'll have any side effects. That uh... there, there was the one guy that said, "My soul it grows more disordered," and he's like arguing with his cousins. Cousins telling him he's being a wussy and stop. And he says it. he feels like he shrinks in proportion to who he was the day before. And the other guy makes a joke that he's not shrinking. He's eating all the meat. 
Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious if anything happens to the to the soldiers because they've been eating all this string meat. Um, I mean, it could be just it could be just like psychological. Like, I would also feel weird if I was eating something that looked like a human foot. It's technically GMO, though, right? Organic. <laughs> Who knows if they tested it on humans before they started releasing the shrink? Hmm. Who knows what the effects on this modified non-men meat is going to be? Yeah, I was going to say. We already like... know when you burn it down and put it on your tongue, it'll it'll help you. And make you emotionless. I wonder if someone tried burning the string yet. Piles of body. There's piles and piles of bodies to choose from. Yeah, I mean, they, they. I think they also are burning parts of them. So in theory, like you could get some GMO Kiri if you wanted to in the camp. Huh. Yeah, that was interesting how it talked about, like, how at the beginning of the war, the ordeal men, like, once chased and massacred this rank, and now they hunted them and, and worked a grizzly harvest, it says. So they're, like, harvesting them for food now. It's like a resource to them instead of their enemy. Well, this I guess if if it was reversed, then the strength. I mean, the strength probably would have no trouble eating the men. Well, um, they'll all get raped. I've read the chapters. Everyone gets raped. It's sad, but it's true. Oh gosh, those strength are terrible. They're born from a race of lovers. And the non-men, though. Yeah, it's a bad mix. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> um, so when Kellis was had the head on the pole behind them, and he was talking to these guys, what were those guys? Were, were those demons? Were those were those the same people that that other school of magic like brought out into the real world? Or well, were those you... the gods and we are the bread, even the little babies? Do you have any theories, Steve? I thought it was, I thought it was like god figures. Or, that's kind of what I, but I don't know. I was guessing. Yeah, I'm probably also leaning more towards them being the gods because I think in. Probably in the Wailug Warrior, uh, the, uh, what was his name? The Kisharim. He, I think he talked about the gods basically like feeding on souls um, of, you know, the people who passed to the outside. And so I, like, I don't, I don't know, like, how, I'm not sure, like, how literally we should all just take, like, I don't know if they're actually, like, 
eating the people. Um, but at least in like more like an abstract way. I feel like he offered hella some, didn't he? You just say, don't you want some of this baby? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, but they also talk about how like, or I think Kel says it, that, um, that like human emotions um, are kind of like meat in the outside. Um, where is it? I think I wrote it somewhere. No, no. Yeah, uh, he he's, he says that love is meat, hope is meat, courage, outrage, anguish, all things are meat, seared over fire, sucked clean of grease. So it, it does sound like they're sort of feeding on, like not necessarily on the physical form of the people there, but on like their essence or their emotions or like such psychological states. So if the gods work a grizzly harvest and more their bread, then does that mean anyone who like is a good person and their soul isn't damned? It's like a spoiled, spoiled wheat plant because they're not going to harvest them. They're only harvesting the bad. If, if there was no more bad people, they wouldn't be able to suck clean all of the horribleness they seem to like. I don't, maybe if you're like completely emotionless, then there is nothing to harvest. So they just don't bother. Um, but then people like my Mara certainly love and hate and have all kinds of i think thoughts that would not be considered pure um so feastable feastable thoughts <laughs> yeah but then i mean i think it kind of all comes down like we've we've already i think we've had this conversation probably a few times like what who like what are the rules like who determines the rules what behavior or what actions make you damned and what actions are what what actions are redeemable i'm still waiting for that list <laughs> i don't know that we'd even be able to give that to you at the end of the series you may not know. this is true and then we had Moingus and Saraway, and I think it was Saraway kind of questioning how much Kellis really knows. She says, our father is wrong about more than you know. The world overmatches him as it does us or anyone. He simply carries the battle deeper. Well... I, I was also wondering if Kellis, like, I, I was wondering to, like, does, does, because Sorwheel, like, he thinks that they can see how much 
he hates them and despises them and he thinks that's because of um sort of like the the mask that Yadwer put on his face or Prosperian put put on his face when he was smearing with the mud um but i mean is 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 that true like does he actually hate Kellis and then Sirwa or does he does he still believe in the greater ordeal to the extent that if he had to choose, he would fight with them against the consult. So I don't know. I'm not so sure anymore. Um, and maybe Kellis sees through all this. Like maybe he knows that Yatware has been manipulating so real, and he he's just Kellis just played along. Uh, but maybe he is actually blind. I don't know. It's all very ambiguous confusing and in these chapters it sort of looked like uh moingus can see that he's lying more than sarway can just by his rage at them and then he gets compelled and has to go clean himself <laughs> yeah sarway still believes that he's telling the truth and that maybe their dad's wrong, which could imply that maybe their dad sees something in him. And Saraway thinks that he's wrong. It is very tricky. And then they need him, seems like they need him to be an enemy. Otherwise, their whole pact might end up bad. They all might get killed. They seem to just get taken as slaves right at the end of this, right? They all. I mean, I have some questions about this. Like, first of all, um, <laughs> um, if if they needed an enemy, like if they actually wanted someone who was a true enemy to them, why did they bring Sorwheel with them? Like, why did they choose the believer, the alleged believer king? To come with them like they could have just picked someone like Duranga who clearly clearly hates or at least dislikes the Inasarimber and is not a believer they easily could have taken him would have made things much easier so why bother with Doriel that's one question um if you have any thoughts feel free to respond <laughs> I think uh because they feel like they can control him or he has some other purpose that they're guiding him to the destination that they want i think they they kind of see him as being weak and that he's they can control him and i'll say we talked about coincidences before ever since kellis ended up on a grave that nair found him at so long ago and how much could be coincidence this one Yet Warian Tool ends up being the one that gets sent to Ishrabinth. Did Kellis know or did the gods just like suggest it? I mean, it is true that he sees a stork right before he enters Ishrabinth. Yeah. So I guess the goddess might be involved or may have had something to do with him 
going to wish Durbin's. Kind of got the impression that Moingus planned to kill Surway. I'm sorry, not Surway. Uh, Sorwheel. And Surway convinced him not to. It kind of felt like he was. Moingus was going to kill him, but didn't because of Surway that she stopped. Is it, or am I wrong in that? That's kind of the impression I had. I, th I think you're right. I think he's scared because they needed him not to love them by the time they got there. And they tried everything they could, and it just didn't seem to work. But is it worse? Is it worse if they show up with an enemy who isn't really an enemy, or if they showed up without any enemy at all? I'd he say no. Some purpose. Nobody knows. Um, and that leads me to my second question, sort of. Um, why did, why do the non-man attack them? Like, is it because, um, is it because they are actually working with the consult? And so when they first proposed the, the Neom, that was just a ruse and they, they wanted to like capture Callus's children, or is it that they just forgot that that's what they agreed on because we know that their memory isn't the great, the greatest, um, or is there something else? I don't think, uh, <laughs> just shrugs, Daniel just shrugs. Um, I kind of felt like the consult is using the non-men somehow and the non-men, like you said, are a little, they're not the most stable people around. So maybe the consult is manipulating them too in some way. I don't remember who said it, but we did learn that Mr. Bent is in alignment with the console. I think it was the Synthes talking to someone, but I don't remember exactly when they said that. They did say that, but... I, I think it was, it might have been Nelgikas who actually mentioned it hmm. when he remembered something for once. Um, but I don't know. I feel I feel like they could have just they might have just forgotten that they proposed the Niom in the first place, and then these like three people show up in in their house and like, what are you doing here? We have to arrest you. Or it's just part of the process. The Neom is them taking three people as basically slaves until just and until they can trust him. So, how good do they treat the Yamwa? They they seemed like stricken children. So. I wonder, are, are are they Mwama just our Scott Baker's take on the hobbits? Like, mm. are they like degenerate hobbits? Is is that it? Is that how I'm supposed to picture them? I never thought of it that way. I don't know. That's a good good point. I mean, is some of them even call some one of them even calls them halflings. I think of them as much more slender than a hobbit. Maybe the same size. 
it talked about one of them holding Sorville's hand and it being like a little kid's hand, but just calloused. A little callous kid's hand. <laughs> then it talks about how they're all like kind of Down syndrome from just the, all the inbreeding that has been happening. Maybe it is. His, his take on elves is pretty broken. Maybe it is the hobbits. They don't seem to have any fun, though. I, mean, I really enjoy this part, um, and I can't wait to learn more about um, about Esterabend. It's it just it's like really I just like how like this like this is like a perverse way or perverse like rewriting of Lord of the Rings in some ways. I think in the second series, especially, he leans in pretty heavily on some of those. Um, like in in the uh, the judging eye, there's a lot of Lord of the Rings kind of vibes. Yeah, different take, significantly different takes on the tropes that J.R.R. Tolkien created that everyone else just uses. It's like a funhouse mirror of those tropes and those ideas. Yeah, well, I'm certainly enjoying it. It's um, it's it's a lot of fun to just think of like what it will come up with next. When they're looking at Isterbent and it talks about how Sorwell's like amazed that they could make it, and I think Moinga says endless life, endless ambition. That's that's a, a good description of maybe what the non-men are. Yeah, I really like that quote, though I would say that maybe, like, it, it seems that, especially when they actually arrive um, at Ishtarabinth, that the place is pretty run down. Like, it, I, I don't really see, it doesn't seem like they have much ambition left, the non-men. It yeah. seems more like they themselves are also degenerating. I think Moengus says, does this look like a place where a sane king rules? The whole place is like in shambles. Yeah. And I guess we're going to find out soon. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm surprised you got through these three chapters so quick, uh, Katarina, because you you're a little bit ahead of schedule this time. No, no, no procrastination this, this time. Well, I mean, I, I did read them on the plane, and then I reread them when I got back from my vacation. So I feel like I might even be overprepared this time. You've been inconsistent now. What's going on? But, I mean, the note-taking part of it is, it's uh, that's pretty time-consuming, I will say. Yeah. Did you, have, did you have anything else in your notes for Chapter 2? For chapter two, probably not. Um, I just had one note about shame and like how big of a well, I don't know, I don't know if you can call shame a character trait, but it's like it's such a big part of like what 
Sorwheel has been experiencing since the beginning of, of this series. A motivator. It's a, it's a motivator. Yeah, I, I, that's, I think that's a fair way of describing it. Um, yeah, like it's such a big part of like what what motivates him and what drives him and I don't know like I can't like on one hand he is like he is kind of weak like he he doesn't he's not exactly like an inspiring person like he he doesn't usually react very well to like things happening to him but at the same time like he's been through a lot so can you really blame him that he's turning like can you really blame the you know that he's so like full of hate and just i don't know not really holding it together hmm. i guess i didn't think of it that way until you said it but yeah um i'm rooting against our wheel though i don't know Oh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. You like that character. You're, you're a, a Yatwer hater or just a Sorwell hater? Just a Sorwell hater. I don't know. Something <laughs> about that character. I just... <laughs> I'm sorry, Connor. I'm sorry. That's Connor. fine. I mean, it's it it makes it more fun when he does in some ways remind me of the redheaded girl from the Game of Thrones, uh... Sansa. Yeah. Oh wow! I feel that. They're my only comparisons in like a semi dark. Some kids that go through some terrible circumstances in a semi dark world. Hmm. The first time I read this book, I had no comparisons. I just kind of felt bad for Sorwell. He lost his parents. He's taken away as a slave, basically. He gets chosen as another slave by a god. I guess it depends on the term you want to look at. He's a chosen one, but it could it's pretty much a slave, right? Yeah. If you if you watch how the White Luck Warrior lives his life, he appears like a slave in all aspects to me. Knows where he's going, knows what he's gotta do, he doesn't mind. He never has any dreams or ambitions. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, yeah, like I, I do agree with that description. Um, and I guess like it, going back to the comparison with Sansa, I guess you can say that both of them, both Sansa and Sorwheel had pretty uh, sheltered upbringing. And then the reality just crashed into them. Um, and I mean, each of them deal with it their own way, but yeah, they're, they're kind of, they don't really have much agency or, and I mean, they both are kind of trying to find it, um, as they're fighting whatever is happening to them and trying and try to, and to try to escape through the manipulation that in Sir Wheel's case, like it's most of the goddess, I guess, but also the Ennis Rember and. And Sansa's it's all the the politicians in in uh oh, I already forgot the name of the city. Gosh. I really need to reread the Game of Thrones. I I thoroughly hated Sansa's sections. 
they were so hard to read in those books for me but Sorwill is not the same it's highly readable I think Sansa is the one character in Song of Ice and Fire that I change my mind most dramatically about like I, I also find her incredibly annoying in the first books and then gradually over time she became one of my favorite characters in the series um so it would be interesting to reread it now with the you know knowing where she sort of ends up uh at least where she is at in book five would be kind of interesting um but yeah i think like that's a really that's a really interesting comparison so thanks for bringing it up daniel um I don't think I don't think that Sorwheel is like a complete slave to Yachtware. Like he he sort of, I mean, he he doesn't have much agency. I do agree with that. He sort of like goes with the flow of the events, I guess. But at the same time, there is still like certain his his inner, inner dialogue is is complete like free agency, seemingly he's having the struggle and you get to see that he's having the struggle whether his actions have free agency is still i guess up for debate but in his head he's debating it which makes it seem like he's got the free agency yeah yeah i think that's that's a really nice way of uh describing it um he is still like very undecided and it's quite ambiguous about whether he like wants to be yacht wears chosen one or whether he thinks that he should still join the queer ordeal even though Kellis has murdered his entire family and holds his native city captive and has made him into a slave basically yeah. R. Scott Baker is really good at making things hard to tell like maybe Saraway is seeing his true face maybe he really does just love Deanna Shrimbers maybe the goddess is hiding nothing and he only thinks they are because he thinks that he hates someone really the greater him if we're like comparing the lesser pro yes and the greater pro yes the greater sore will knows he loves them the lesser sore will is in denial or maybe the goddess is hiding it hmm. it's it's still kind of up in the air even though we've had a lot of chapters about it so is kellis's goodness or badness i think is kind of still still up in the air after five thousand pages <laughs> or something <laughs> And I think that's hard for an author to do, is just to leave things, to give a lot of detail and still make it a coin flip as to what the truth is. Yeah, I mean, that is, like, his characters are one of the things that makes these books so exciting and intriguing to read for me, for sure um like if nothing else if, like if i had to choose one thing that i would you know praise about these books like if i could choose like one thing i would choose the characters 
Um, but and also, I think, like, yes, it's very ambiguous, but also Sore Wheel, like, he's the kind of guy who can change his mind in a second. <laughs> like, literally, like, he was in love. He <laughs> was in love with, with Serwa until, like, that moment. And then now he's, like, she's she's, like, the most hated person in his universe. So... But he still loves her. He even like alludes to that when he has to grab onto her and he's mad at her. He still wants to grab onto her really bad, even though he just hates her guts. So she's kind of right. He still loves her, yeah. And then he realized that he kind of got played. They wanted him to see that maybe. Maybe there was a purpose. Maybe the, they're Dunyane and the Dunyane don't do anything without him purpose yeah it's, no um, it's really it's really convoluted i i'm, I'm kind of losing track of like who's has intended what to happen and who's actually making things happen and the like if people have are doing certain things are they doing them because they decided to do them or is there some like god or an entity or a Nessa Rimber that's like secretly manipulating them. It, it's it's just too, it's too much. It's too complicated. Um, so I don't trust anyone or anything or anyone's motivations. I don't I don't trust any I don't trust what anyone's thinking because even if they're thinking doesn't mean it's actually their own thoughts. Um, it sounds like you're having an existential crisis. I hope you don't think that the Anders Rimbers are trying to do anything to you in real life tomorrow um, when you're going about your day. I mean, I basically have an existential crisis every week, so. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens this one's probably triggered by, by reading this book. The, uh, the section to start chapter three, there's a couple of things. Um, they, in, so this, this, uh, the ones that I have, uh, highlighted is the mother sheds her tear, gives what has been given. He watches himself cast what is broken, sees the aspect emperor stumble, then vanish beneath the mother's heel. And they also reference a peach, not that kind of peach, another peach. Um, that, uh, but the peach is already in his hand, and there's a reference to a peach later in the in the chapter. Kind of, um, all these things are happening at once. Kind of some Lovecraftian stuff is kind of the way those sections strike me. But. Yeah, I think I think it's is it safe to say that the peach that's mentioned in the first scene is the same peach that Esmanet throws him later in the chapter. Um, the other stuff. So, I, okay, I have another theory. <laughs> I love all these theories. It's good stuff. Well, I can finally fr freely theorize now that I don't have to worry about uh, spoiling anything. Um, so, okay. Might be complete nonsense, but I think there is going to be an earthquake in moment because like when he talks about like the 
the mother devouring the city or something like that. I'm thinking Yatwer, she's the mother, she's the goddess of the earth. What can, like, how can she devour anything? Hmm. So maybe, you know, like the earth opens or something. Like Mother Nature, kind of. Yeah. Hmm. And I don't know, like that, 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 that's something that's just struck to me when, when I was reading that, when I was reading that, that first, uh, little bit from the from the wildlife warrior why why hasn't she struck down ishtar bent the whole the whole mountain weeps it's the weeping mountain what well, was it weeping of joy or <laughs> i don't know does does she does well maybe she needs this sharpens why why would why would she need to uh why would she need to strike strike it she we know she like she hates the ns remember she hates the empire. She wants to destroy the empire. So if she destroys Momim and, and the Empress and all her, um, all her, the entire administration of the empire, that'll probably solve her problem of, of getting rid of the empire. So you're calling the downfall of Esmnet a natural disaster, not finale. Well, natural, I guess it depends on how we define natural. But yeah, I think Esmanet, Kelmomas will die in an earthquake. Eliopa? Um, I think it talks about Theliopa disappearing in some like blackness or darkness, if I remember well. Yeah, and as a thin and oddly apparelled girl joins their company, Theliopa, whose subtlety has been horned into simplicity, Someone who was there when it happens, he explains to her, even as he watches her vanish beneath crashing black. So I think earthquake also could mean a tsunami. Oh, yeah. So maybe. the ripples. And I mean, the, the palace is kind of pretty close to the sea, I think. So maybe Thelio, <laughs> maybe Theliopa dies because she gets crashed by a tsunami. And they do reference standing on a green hill, which would mean that they're above ground, so they're above the water. That would be ripples against all creation. How are you liking my theory, Daniel? I was trying to gauge his reaction. I was trying to, he, he's good at he's good at hiding his reactions. I don't know if we're close or not. It's a decent guess. <laughs> we we know that he. Seems, seems to see lots of future things all at once. And it's hard to pick out the interpretation. They gave us one example with the peach because we've seen that play out. The question get asked and the peach get thrown. But maybe, maybe the darkness is Kelmomus. What? What do you think the white look warrior sees when he looks at little Kelmomus? Hmm. I have not given that any thought. 
I mean, you could be right, but our Scott Baker likes to play with words. Like he's really playing with meat now. Lots of things are becoming meat. Meat. And there's multiple peaches now, not just the the description of peaches, like actual peaches. Yeah, I, I did wonder if there is any particular reason why it is a peach that she throws to the White Love Warrior. Like, could it not have been any other fruit? Was there? An, a, I think it was in the last book. They talk about another piece of fruit. I forget what fruit it was, but they there's a piece of fruit that they mentioned in one of those. Yeah, I do sections. remember that. I feel like that was maybe an apple. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I have no recollection. It was interesting how he chose to eat the fruit. Do people do that in places of the world? Really? just grab the peach and lift it above their head and just squeeze all the juices into their mouth and not really eat it. I always ate the peach. Uh, I, a peach is a, I, I, every time we, we talk about a peach, I just, I just can't help but think back to uh, call me by your name where there's also a peach scene. If you've seen it, you know, Seen that one. Well, you can add that to your 24 films from A24. Oh, it might be in my list. I, I think it's an A A24 movie. I'm pretty sure. Um, but okay, then I won't spoil anything. Um, but yeah, like peaches are very sexualized fruit for some reason. For some reason. Yeah, but who, yeah knows? The, who knows why? Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do agree. Like, there are a lot of like abstract things, and people are being compared to edibles in, in these books. Edibles for the gods hmm. or the demon, Sifrang, whatever, whatever those things that just are relaxing in a lake of fire are. Yeah, I, maybe one day I will know what the difference between a god and a suffering is, but until then. Um, for chapter three, I miss Maithanette. <laughs> I miss him. He got a raw deal. He It was not, not cool. He almost seems like one of the most level-headed people in the series by the end of him. He put in a lot of work, this whole thing, and he just, uh, the way he went out was just so depressing. It's probably the, the worst death, I think, in, the, in the, the whole series so far. I mean, depends on how we define worst. Well, I mean, survey got, survey was that was a rough one too. And she was pretty helpless. I mean, she didn't have as much control over the situation. She had no control over the situation. So yeah, maybe not. I would argue that Maithanet's death was pretty quick and painless compared to some other uh, deaths that we've witnessed in the series. But 
Doesn't in yeah. in Rao try to like jump off the thing and they like scalp him, like grab his hair or something? What? I don't remember that. I think I feel like that's how he died. He died like trying to run away right at the end, and he lost his hair. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember anything about hair, I, but it might as well be. I don't. I remember he jumped off the balcony. Yeah, I think they were holding on to him when he did. So some of him stayed. I, I should probably rephrase. I, when I say worst death, I don't mean like the worst, worst, like less, most painful, or, but I just mean the the character that I, that I miss the most. It's bizarre, but I'm I'm really sad for you. <laughs> I would say if I could have one character still be alive it would be cleric or the crazy son the bad mm. son in Ra in ralitas mm. oh, yeah, but, but cleric would be cool to have alive still what about you katarina if you can bring back one character who would it be oh, that's hard i mean Icary, one of the Icaries. <laughs> Yeah, I would probably one of the. I mean, it wouldn't it be nice if wouldn't it be nice if it was um, if it was Confus instead of Fenial who was trying to recapture Momen. Hmm. But I mean, I mean, either either um, either Confus or Nayor are my obvious answer. Oh yeah, I should have guessed that. Should have guessed Nayor. Neor was but fun. I, I also I will I mean if, if I had to choose one of the secondary characters, um I think Eliazarus was kind of fun. Really like he was not a good dude, but he was fun. He was entertaining. There aren't many good dudes in the series though, so it's hard to it's hard to choose. I think you'd have to choose more of um who would be fun to see what they would do next or who would continue their story yeah compass <laughs> i think that's my uh, final answer he's probably sitting in a lake of fire having the marrow sucked out of him maybe well if he has if he had a soul though which <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> It, well, you know, like, remember that Kellis did say that his soul was um, damaged or somehow deformed. So maybe, maybe he's been deemed not, uh, not edible. If, any, if anyone was not edible, I think it was the, the captain. His soul bounced. That's how unedible he was. Hit the <laughs> hit the lake of fire and it just bounced back up <laughs> yeah, or, Kel or Kellis brought him back from the outside maybe since he's been there maybe he was like a leech and when Kellis was there he like just got stuck in his pants or something and <laughs> Kellis brought him back by accident <laughs> Kellis doesn't do anything by accident Fair enough. But I mean, it must be pretty difficult to navigate the outside. Yeah. Even if you're a Kellis. He does still need to 
head on a pole behind him. I, I love Espinet. Um, I thought she was going to die in this chapter. I thought that was it for her. Really? Yeah, I thought she was going to die. I, it was close. It was a yeah, close was one. Close. She didn't realize till it was too late. But I, I, I like that everyone questioned her and or kind of would try to, like, what would Callus do, basically, or Callus, um, his outlook on things or this, the decisions he would make. Theo wanted her to do whatever he would do, and I like that she did. Um, she still um, made made the decision she wanted, even though like she kind of got lucky at the end of the chapter. I feel like things just kind of worked out for her. Like it wasn't she kind of you know wasn't necessarily her. Just things worked out. I mean, was it like is her losing her her only sorcerer a good outcome for her i guess she's alive so that's good mm. her her daughter also seems to be alive um so that's a point for her but uh, i think i don't know in my in my book it was kind of a fiasco was wasn't that the last sishwaram though or am i wrong i feel like he was also the last but is he is he dead though, or did he fly away? That was also kind of unclear. I think that he got arrowed to death because he looked looked at the core as it was coming, and it took away his defensive thought. Oh, and then is that it, what talked happened? about arrows jutting through his shoulder, and then something like pushed him over, and he felt he toppled. The ground beneath him gave way death came swirling down it well, didn't, it didn't, it didn't say... say as much <laughs> yeah I, I i think he might still live um but he'll probably need some time to recover from getting shot by like three arrows in a row um but yeah i was, I was a bit confused about why he didn't have any defensive wards so you're saying that he like the the Corey basically like negated all all of those is that what uh, happened his focus like at the moment she threw it he he looked over and i think he just barely dodged it but him dodging it took away his in other roles or his ability to stop that and i think the Corey like kills the defenses it goes through hmm. yeah Okay. It kind of it, the way they describe it, it's like an invisible shell, and it shatters the shell. If that makes sense. I, I assume I assume he died because they were going to be able to kill the finale. So if I I assume everyone who came there died. But, I never related to Esmond and more than when she threw the core and missed. Oh. <laughs> I was always so bad at throwing balls <laughs> and anything in sports. Like my my eye hand coordination is so bad that if it was me, I would like it would not have been like close miss. It would have been like five feet away. Oh, that's I don't know how I don't know how big feet are. Sorry. <laughs> 
but it would have been like a miss by a long, long distance. I like how you said uh, Esmonet's still alive, so points for her. Like, oh, I guess she's still alive. I guess it's okay. I mean, it could have, as you said, like she could have died. This could have ended up a lot worse. I, because there was a, a point there where it, kind of, she almost was preparing for it. Like it was almost like okay. So I thought that was, that was it. But, but it was a fiasco, definitely. Points to Finale. They played the Dunyan game better. It seems like they kind of have a, a snare approach now, or a snare approach to like think about what the Dunyan would do before you even do anything at all. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess also now that now that um, both of the sorcerers or yeah, both of the sorcerers are dead, the uh, nothing's really like the the nothing's really changed. Like they're still sort of even. Like no one's really come on top because of this uh, encounter. I think it's they said eight thousand to thirty thousand estimated but they have walls <laughs> still the disadvantage that's a lot of see yeah but yeah having having walls is a is a big uh big bonus and it sounds like the siege towers are already built so we're gonna see what happens soon sore Sor wheels like walking into istrabin so we're gonna see what happens soon Akamian is at Ishul, so we're going to see what happens soon. There's no traveling we need to do, except for the Great Ordeal. Uh, they're still walking. They're just reinvigorated because they have food now. I'm, I'm definitely more excited to walk with the Great Ordeal than walk with a commune again i mean like i'm very i'm very curious to see what they found at ishwal um and to find out what's happened to the dunyan and who who has destroyed ishwal but please please let's not go into any any woods anymore i i'm really i'm really over that You'd rather him travel in a uh, inner mountain mansion that was more fun than endless trees and hordes of shrink and a captain just sl slitting the neck of any weeper along the way. Yeah, that was definitely more fun. Or the desert would be better, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm being realistic here. I don't think you'll find many deserts uh, in the north. Though there are some cold deserts as well, um, like the Gobi. But uh, I, I haven't checked the map, but I don't think there is a desert, unfortunately. Katarina, were you surprised to find out uh, there was a skin spy? What? I'm surprised now. There the was last... a skin spy? The last stone hag, is that who you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wait, are we talking about the white leg warrior now? No, hold on. Give me one second. Let me find the page before I say something stupid. 
you're in a safe environment here, don't worry. I, I doubt that. I think when when the arc fell, it kind of turned a hundred mile radius into kind of desert. It killed all the trees and leveled the land. It's, that's desertish. Okay, but I mean, it's been four thousand years. Um, shouldn't some vegetation have returned? Maybe. I want to reference something when it when it talks about the Bashrag and basically anything that comes from up there, but I'm going to wait. Okay. Their description. There's some weird descriptions of these crazy monstrosities. Okay. I also say I'm a little bit disappointed with Maithanet. I'm sorry, Steve. What? Ooh. <laughs> because, Sounds I mean, you fire. would think, like, as Danyin, that he would plan ahead and, like, try to secure the defenses of the city in advance. Because, like, he, I mean, he, he had to know that Fenile was coming. But, like, it seems like he, I mean, he basically leaves all his resources to, uh, to clear the city. And now poor Esmanad has, like, no army, no one close to Moomin to help her and, and, uh, and save her from the, from the attackers. Well, uh, two, two, th two thoughts on that. So first, <laughs> in defense of Mithanet, he is only half Dunyane, so, you know, give him a break. And if he was using his 50% Dunyane, maybe this was the plan all along. Wait, so you're saying the plan was to die? Oh. Or to, to have or to have the city captured by by Fenile? Maybe that has to happen. Hmm. I'll say silly people. I'm a bit skeptical about that. In Mathenet's defense, it's like all Esmnet's fault. She's the one that <laughs> ca caused the city to be in ruin, basically, and then she's the one that also killed him in the end. So. She deserves to have no defenses in in his regards. He's he's probably happy. Oh, you were gonna kill me? Fine. Well, his, technically, I would his argue blind spot. I would argue it's Kalmomus's fault because he's the one who made Esmenet do it, and he's the one who killed uh, the oh the mother's no, she's not the mother's. I don't know the yacht where priest is. You know who I'm talking about. All right, now I'll just say it's Esmnet's fault for having Kelmomus in the first place. Then she should have just loved Akamian, and Akamian shouldn't have went to try to read foreign books. It's all <laughs> about his obsession with books. That's really why we're here today. Okay, I'll defend Akamian and say that Kellis is a manipulative monster, and this ultimately is all his doing. Well, Kellis is only doing what he was trained to do. He didn't, doesn't know any differently, so. Yeah, he still might be the savior. You don't even know. He still might be trying to save all of humanity. If he has to just, like, let a person or two go, it's fine. It's like the AI cars. Do you, do you hit the old lady or the little kid? If you're going to get in a wreck and you have to hit one of them, how do you decide? This is programmed into AI cars. 
it's it's a moral debate like there might be a situation where the car needs to either swerve left or swerve right and someone will die in both situations so how does the car decide like which life is more valuable it's it's kind of a trolley problem i guess or an iteration of it isn't it yeah i think that it should just kill both of them anytime one person you gotta kill one or the other just get them kill them both just go in the middle and hit them both <laughs> yeah i guess it saves you a lawsuit <laughs> so i have some more questions um who do you think killed sankas the 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 council to Esmenet, who was secretly trying to return return to the palace. I don't know. Your options are the Fenail, probably, or Kelmomus. Seems like the two logical possibilities. Yatwar, maybe Yatwar. I I if I had to guess, I'd I guess Kelmomus, but because he's a monster too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who, yeah, besides Kelmomis, who just, I guess, enjoys killing people, um, who else would be interested in sabotaging or uh, weakening Esmanet and, and removing one of her few trusted counselors from the scene? I don't know. Maybe Edmund's right. Maybe there is some intrigue going on that we don't know about yet. But it, like Kalmomas was also my first choice until he said he didn't do it, which I'm not sure if we can trust. Um, yeah, we don't we don't know if Beliopa can tell or not. It seems like she believed that he didn't, though. So if she if she has as much of her father's insight, then maybe he's telling the truth. Seems like she can see little Sammy inside of him now a little bit. Yeah, they they seem like Sammy is still hanging around and whispering in some ears from time to time. Yeah, or, I mean, Kelmomas seems to think that he's talking to Sammy, but is he really? You know, that's the question, I think. Um, but I, I really like the scene between Kel, uh, Kelmomas and Filiopa. That was, like, I, mean, I think it was, like, the, one of the first times, maybe bes- maybe except for this, for when he talks to Enriladas, like, it was, was one of the few times where someone actually sees him for what he is and talks to him as he probably should be talked to and treats him the way he should be treated. Um, it was it was so intense. And I was gen- I was like really anxious to see like whether he was going to kill her on the spot or if she was going to tell Esmanet. And in the end she decides she decides not to. Um, but she knows now. So she she's a threat to Kamobas. Yeah, she put a target on her back maybe should have just kept that information to herself 
but uh, he mentions say nothing a pure week and then there's a he could stab her now if you wanted <laughs> Talk, yeah it talks a lot about how weak her flesh is how much more like the mother than the father it is Kellis must have some hard skin maybe a, a, maybe a sword can't even cut it maybe Dunyane's skin is different too I had not even thought of that. I assume non-men, like, everything about them is a little bit different, even if their limbs are sort of the same. And the Dunyan were, what, a thousand or two thousand years in the making, so they're probably not fully human anymore. I mean, it is, it is true that Maithanet did talk about the Danyan bones being um, harder. Yeah, than harder, harder to break. The normal people's bones. So I guess that their skin also might be thicker or um, less easily pierced than a regular person's skin. If anyone knows, it's Kelmomis. I mean, he's, he's definitely pierced some eye eyeballs in the last few weeks. He's done a lot. He'd be eating some eyeballs, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so chapter yeah, that whole that whole section with Espinette at the end was pretty intense. I, I love that section. I, even though I'm glad she made it. Glad she's still kicking. You get more Espinette sections. It's not over. It's not Mathnet. <laughs> I I do wonder I know we we have another almost two bucks to go, but I I do wonder because we're still building. Right, we're still moving forward. We're still learning new things. Kind of wonder how we're going to wrap all this up. Like, how is this all going to come together at the end? I mean, just, I don't just know. in general, like, there's a lot of story to even get to, and then once we get to the climax, then how is it all going to tie together? It's a lot of strings. There's a lot mm. of strings around. We have more and more strings. I wonder how it's going to happen. I'm going to remain stone-faced right here. I know. I mean, I think we're getting we're getting close to Gugadath. Um, I assume that Esmenet is going to stay in Moomin to wait for the earthquake, you know. The tsunami? Yeah, and the tsunami. Um. But I think that that is probably where she will meet her end, if she does at all. Um, and I mean, these like this book is still pretty thick, so I think I have confidence that we'll get at least some answers, to some questions. So, Katarina, oh, I'm sorry, Katarina, go ahead. Steve would tell you everyone's dead, <laughs> even the synthies, right? Everyone dies. Uh, Katarina, if let's say 
uh, let's say you write an Espinette does die. Is she damned? Look, I have no idea. If you had to guess, and it's, I know we don't know definitely, but if you had to guess, where, where would, would she be damned or would she be not? I don't know. It's, it's, the thing is, I don't even trust my Mara when she sees herself and she sees that she's not damned. I don't necessarily trust her that that's actually the case. Hmm. Um, so, but if my Mara is not damned, But I don't know. I mean, Esmeralda has also done some pretty, pretty bad things. And she's been an empress for, what, some 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has made some unpopular decisions and certainly people have died because of her. She burnt down like a whole city because she was sad she sold her kids to that city. <laughs> yeah. It was her fault. So she killed everyone. That's... That's and da- damnable. And I think, she, did she actually end up killing uh, Neri, Nori, Neri, the, the, the prostitute that was hiding her in her, in her apartment? I, thought, I, I took it as she did, that she had to. She was reluctant, but I thought she did. She definitely went there. Mm-hmm. Neri was slinking in a corner. And she was more. What did it say? After. Oh, after the yeah. It sounded like she had already had a bad day. Yeah. After <laughs> the after, after the customs come, then the executioner comes, and that was before she even realized it was Esmnet. I mean, she uh, still could have let her go. We don't. We don't know. She may have. Um, if she did let her go. It's going to come back to hurt her later. What if she renames her Mamara and just lets her move in? There, there was one quote which I found pretty confusing. Um, and it, it, it's something that Esmanette says when, when she's surrounded by all these like generals and councils and they're all men. And she says something um, along the lines of, Maybe she preferred the company of whores. Mm. After all, she also married one. Yeah. I thought that was very strange. Well, Kellis has gotten, he's made his rounds, I guess. But, or it may, be, may mean whore in a different way, like the... Um, fate. Whore, fate, yeah. whore and fate uh, are directly like linked together in this book in parts. Okay, that would make a lot more sense then. I mean, now that, well... I guess there were the concubines, but um, but yeah, the whore representing the fate makes a lot more sense in these circumstances. Or maybe it's just in pot, because Kellis doesn't love her. He loves something else, and nobody knows exactly what it is. Ends and ends to a means. It seems to be what the Dunyan love. Winning, dominating. Hmm. I don't know that they're. I mean, maybe I wouldn't describe it as love. Um, <laughs> maybe it's more, more, more closer to 
desire. I don't know. There, there was, oh, I forget which book it was in. That um, would kind of make him a, a whore, right? Because you, you only want the physical, not the emotional. If that makes sense. Well, that would be more, I mean, well, I, well, I would say that describes someone who visits a whore or a prostitute. Rather than, I think the, the prostitute's probably just doing it for the money. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't there a, a time when I think it was Mathanet was questioning whether Kellis I don't wanna, I don't know if you can say loved Espinet, but was kind of getting soft on her, like kind of. Um, so, but I don't know. Can Kellis love anything? I don't, does he love? Is he capable? I'm pretty sure he says in the darkness that comes before that he is incapable of love. But, I mean, that could easily change over the course of 20 years. And no. there, there is a part where, in the first chapter here, where he's thinking about, where he says something like, I know that the Empire, or like, I know that Esmenet will not survive, Esmenet and, and my family will not survive without me. But can I survive without them is the question. So maybe he has become more human, but also like from reading his thoughts in these, in this first chapter, he seems less human than ever. I, I kind of wonder if that line was because would he survive if they were, if they weren't there because they serve, they have to something they have, they have a role to play that, he wouldn't succeed if they weren't there. So I wondered if it was because he loves them and he can't live without them, or it's because he needs them as a tool to achieve his goals. I don't know. Oh, I'm just throwing things out. Yeah. There has been referenced to like to a Dunyan souls are currency, right? That's, oh. that's, that's how they like control the more souls they have, the more currency they have to work with in, oh, what do they allude to this old battle as? The, the ageless war or whatever? The war for the souls? What do they call it? The forgotten war? Is the forgotten war? can't remember right now can't recall. i've honestly no idea what you're referring to the battle that's been being fought since like the age of the non-men for souls oh. and then people would have forgot but i thought that that was the great ordeal wasn't it no the great ordeal is marching to fight the next the next arc of this war the war has been being fought since the non-men started trying to get to the bottom, get away from as far away from the outside as they can. Because okay. it's a war for souls. I just can't remember the name of it. Didn't they call it the nameless war? 
Yeah, or that something. sounds right. Ageless, oh. nameless. It was something like that. Same thing. Because it had been fought for so long, they forgot the name. I'm, I'm honestly like maybe more confused than I was before. Before you said that, it's it's the war the Synthes have or the consul got constructed to fight to close off the outside. Okay. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Get okay, down okay. to one hundred and forty-four thousand souls. They've been trying to do it for a long time, and from what we learned, they did it on other planets, and it didn't seem to work. It seems like they got other planets down to lower than 144,000 souls, and still they ended up having to crash into Irwa. But have the Dunyan always been part of this war? I think just a soul is naturally like born into the war. If you okay. got a, a soul to wager, then you got their sides, if that makes sense. People can forget that the war was even happening, but the whole time the war's been happening. But then, according to Kellis, Moengas and the other Dunyan would eventually side with the Inkroy in this war. Yeah, because the Dunyan soul doesn't seem seem very light. Edible. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Anything else on, uh, on your notes or anything else you guys want to talk about? No, I think I'm good. I'm, I'm more confused than I was when we started this recording. <laughs> so it's probably better. it's probably better to leave it at that. That's, I think it's pretty much par for the. I mean, that's usually what happens, right? I think I'm usually more. Well, I'm usually usually more confused or more to think about after. That's another way of putting it. Yeah, we're always getting some answers, but the answers are just full of questions too. Another thing I think Baker's good at. Soon we're going to figure out what happened in Ishwal, but is that going to be like the end of? the questions or just lead to a whole other set of questions soon we're going to be in Gogadara. is that going to be the end of the questions or is that going to lead to a whole other set of questions a whole other set of questions that's usually what life does just leaves us with more questions it's true very true so we are doing chapters four through seven for next week. Is that right? So anyone reading along, we'll be back next week. Uh, it's good to be back. I missed you guys. It was weird not talking to you for, for a few weeks, but glad we're back in the swing of things and uh, discussing this series. So before you go, Daniel, if where can people not get in touch with you? At the page chewing forum <laughs> or in the comments when this video gets released. I'll eventually look, and I'll eventually go back, try to go back and look. And Katerina? Yeah, I've, I've been following in Daniel's footsteps. You can't really find me anywhere anymore. 
but I but I'm still on the Patreon forum. So <laughs> if you uh, send me a message or if you tag me, I will most likely read your messages. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah. I guess Steve's our outward face. We're me and Katarina hide behind the curtains. You can get a hold of Steve. He's always making a video somewhere. Yeah, it's been, it's been busy. Soon we're going to have 24 new videos in 24 days. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, just have to figure out a schedule for that. And uh, I need a few weeks off. <laughs> I, need a, I need a little break, and then I'll start that. You should yeah. put the list on the forum somewhere, and maybe I'll try to watch some of them. The list is there. Um, oh, okay. You're welcome for any anyone you want to. We can do whatever. So, yeah. I've seen a good amount of A24 films, but not all of them for sure. Probably There's not even the best ones. I haven't Hello. watched Mother, and I think I need to watch that. Hmm. I, so, yeah. No. I, a DNF though. <laughs> Hmm. I might I might give it a rewatch, but yeah, it was, it was a tough one. I've not seen that one. Yeah, it was different. I might try it again. But thanks everyone for uh, coming by, and we will see everyone next week. <laughs> Chapters four through seven. <laughs>